Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Now, many have speculated that this required a great degree of planning. The humiliation for Netanyahu is that these beasts and animals, as his interior minister described them, have launched a most unprecedented attack. Israelis could not believe they were stunned that this ragtag group of Palestinians, from their perspective, could inflict such a damage on Israel. Let the batteries die on the phone so that when we go in and ethnically cleanse, there'll be nobody to see it. Is there hope in this very bleak time? Hundreds of thousands of people are watching your videos, but why are they watching your videos? The inhumane aggression by which Israel treats Palestinians is known to everyone who possesses an ounce of justice. This excludes, of course, Western nations for whom apparently history began last Saturday. However, they are very aware that the colonial outposts they set up in the Middle East is hell-bent on extracting as much land as possible to accommodate racist Americans and Europeans. They are well aware that in the process, Israel slowly squeezes Palestinians and of the daily humiliations, the trigger-happy border guards and the maiming and the murder. They know all of this yet remain deaf to the cries. They give the murderous state weapons of war, instruments of torture and diplomatic cover. Just this past week, the main political parties on both sides of the Atlantic were falling over each other to give Israel the green light in an age of impunity Israel has a free pass. But what lay behind the events of last week? And what can we expect in the coming weeks from the regional and international actors? To help us untangle the political issues, we once again invite onto the thinking Muslim, Sami Hamdi. Sami Hamdi is the managing director of the International Interest and a Middle East commentator. Sami Hamdi, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome back to the wa podcast. Wa alaikum Thank you for having me, Mohammed. It's, uh, it's great to have you with us once again. Well, Sami, let's start with uh, Hamas's surprise attack last Saturday. Now, many have speculated that this required a great degree of planning. And there is some speculation that maybe there was some international hand at play. And some fingers, the Wall Street Journal, point towards Iran. Now, I note that uh, the Americans, I think it was the Secretary of State and, and Jake Sullivan also suggested that Iran didn't have a direct hand in uh, the attacks on Saturday. 
but the speculation still remains. I mean, do you think Iran had a role in uh, the events on Saturday? I think that when it comes to the role of Iran, I think the first thing to note is that the Wall Street Journal did come out and it did say that there was an Iranian involvement. And the sentence that it used was that Iran had given the green light to Hamas to to embark on this particular attack. The first thing that's worth noting is it's not just Hamas that is attacking. There are a good nine, ten different groups that are attacking. And I think one of the reasons that the Israelis are emphasizing on Hamas is because if you say it's a Hamas offensive instead of a Palestinian offensive, then it becomes very easy to paint the whole thing as if it's some sort of terrorist operation as opposed to a Palestinian resistance towards an apartheid regime that has blockaded the Palestinians in that Gaza open-air prison. Right. To go back towards Iran, I think that the first thing that's worth noting is that the US deny Iranian involvement, Iran itself is denying that it's involved, and even the Israelis are that's denying true. that the Iranians are involved. And yeah. when you consider it, there are two reasons why. The first, or the two possible reasons why. The first is perhaps that the Iranians are involved and the Americans and the Israelis are very keen to prevent this escalation from becoming a region-wide issue. We've seen that Hezbollah in Lebanon has been showing some sort of restraint, not trying to be dragged into the particular conflict. We've seen Turkey, Erdogan with a very toned down messaging. I don't want to get too involved in this either. The Saudis, we don't, we want restraint. We want it to be toned down. We've seen that Iran genuinely has not been trying to encourage it too much mm. in public or the like. The idea being that if Iran is involved in helping the Palestinians to plan it, perhaps they didn't give the green light, then the Israelis and the US don't want this to go beyond the confines of the current conflict. Mm. And this is why they're downplaying the role of Iran publicly. The second scenario, however, is that Iran has been doing what it's always been doing, which is helping to provide some logistical support, some military know-how or the like, and that this is, quite frankly, a uniquely Palestinian affair. The reality is that the Palestinians don't need an excuse to lash out at Israel. Consider the context. Last week, Netanyahu was at the United Nations, last week from the recording of this podcast, mm. Netanyahu was at the United Nations. In the map that he held up of the United Nations, he's completely erased Palestine. On the map, he has Israel and then he has Jordan and Saudi Arabia and the like. In the same breath that he hold up, held up this map, he was talking about normalization with Saudi Arabia and how it would be the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War. Then the Israeli ambassador to the UN in an interview with Khan Channel, which is one of the Israeli channels, is asked, will Netanyahu's right-wing government sign off on normalization with Saudi Arabia? Mm. Implying that they wouldn't because there'll be concessions to Palestinians. And the Israeli ambassador responds and says, normalization means the Arab abandonment of the Palestinians. And when the government realizes this, they'll know exactly what decision they should be making. The point here being is that in this context of the buildup, the raids on Jenin as Netanyahu pushes aggressively to try to annex the West Bank, with Netanyahu sitting with Erdogan for the first time in the United Nations and Erdogan telling him, look, I want a gas pipeline, I want warmer ties, I want us to be friends again. My proof is this is the first time we're meeting since Erdogan came to power in 2003. This is the first time that we're sitting together. Netanyahu was lulled into this complacency that given that the Muslim nations or those who are supposed to rescue Palestine are now abandoning it, he wasn't expecting this to take place. But mm. the point here is what I'm saying is that the Palestinians, in light of this heavy pressure coming in, this sense of abandonment by many of the Muslim nations, didn't need Iran to give them a green light wow. to launch this offensive. Some will say yes, but such an offensive needs months to prepare. But normalization talks with Saudi Arabia have been ongoing for more than a year. Mm. So if it, if, if it takes one year to plan the offensive, one year from when Saudi Arabia have hinted that they're going to abandon the Palestinian cause. And also, 
if you think that the Saudi ambassador went to the Palestinian Authority to discuss the preparations for announcing normalization of ties with Israel, something that angered ordinary Palestinians so much that they prevented the Saudi ambassador from going to pray in Al-Aqsa, I think that for the Palestinians, the reality is that the explosive nature of this attack by the Palestinians, I know everybody wants to focus on Hamas, but by the Palestinians, because those who are talking about it in the media, like Hossein Zumlod, the ambassador, Mustafa Barghouti, they are associated with the Palestinian Authority, not with Hamas, mm. with whom the Palestinian Authority have an issue with. But the point here being is that the Palestinians didn't need an excuse to go. So it may well be Iran has a role. Mm. If it has a role, Israel doesn't believe it's significant or it wants to downplay that role. But the second scenario, and I think this is the more important part, is the Palestinians didn't need encouragement and they have shown an extraordinary demonstration of their agency and reminded everybody that they still exist and they still have agency irrespective of the political developments, which suggest that perhaps their cause was dying at one point. I mean, the last time we spoke, we talked about Saudi normalization. It just seemed to us that uh, the Palestinian role in this crisis was somewhat being downplayed and they were now subject to the tyranny of the Israelis and there was nothing they could do about it. Do you feel that in a sense, the Palestinian cause has now become center stage in this crisis once again. I think that one of the biggest issues currently, particularly with regards to attempts to de-escalate the situation, mm. is that Netanyahu has been humiliated because Netanyahu told the Israelis that as a result of these normalization processes, nobody would come to the rescue of the Palestinians and therefore the Palestinians have no power. Right. And when Netanyahu raised that map that we mentioned, when he erases Palestine, it means that now that normalizations are taking place, we can wipe out the Palestinians eventually. We can cleanse them, send them to Egypt or wherever, whatever people are talking about at this moment in time. The humiliation for Netanyahu, it would have been better for, in Netanyahu's perspective if Saudi or Turkey or UAE had provided help to the Palestinians to fight. Then he could say that this is a regional international effort to come and attack Israel and we're internationally under threat. The humiliation for Netanyahu is that these beasts and animals, as his interior minister described them, these people who are blockaded in open-air prison, who have homemade weapons, who are supremely inferior, in his opinion, to the Israelis, have launched a most unprecedented attack and the greatest threat to Israel since 1973. Put it into context. This is the first time since 1948 that the Palestinians have been able to take land back from the Israelis. They've been able to take the land that was taken from them violently by the Israelis. Even if they don't hold on to that land, that in itself is unprecedented. And it's this is the reason why the Israelis declared war, a state of war, for the first time since 1973. Some people will be thinking, but wait, Gaza's been bombarded and the like. But Israel hasn't actually declared a state of war when it's bombarded Gaza in the past. Mm. The extent of the threat that these Palestinians, who were supposed to have been abandoned, who were supposed to be inferior, who were supposed to be lacking in capabilities and technology, meant that Net Netanyahu has had to declare a state of war. And there was this sense of uh, uh, the confusion in the first 24 hours and 48 hours over how to handle it. And the confusion was because the Israelis could not believe they were stunned that this ragtag group of Palestinians, from their perspective, that this ragtag group of Palestinians could inflict such a damage on Israel. So this is why when you ask the question about the agency of the Palestinians, mm. I think it's less political agency in the sense that the Palestinians have to be talked to or the like and more an agency of being able to ruin, spoil, and impose themselves 
on anything that doesn't guarantee their rights or anything that doesn't respect them. In the words of King Abdullah of Jordan, the Palestinians have demonstrated that you can't just fly over Palestine and make a deal that's going to condemn them or the like. I think the Palestinians have reminded everybody that they're there, that they have agency. And this is why, and this is why we also talk about the war of narratives. This is why Israel is keen on framing it as Hamas versus Israel. Because if you assert that it's Hamas versus Israel, then the US and Israel can say that we don't talk to terrorist group. We're not going to be talking to the Palestinians even after this de-escalation takes place. Mm. But when you say it's the Palestinians, and this is why it was a welcome breath of fresh air to see members of the Palestinian Authority also defending the Palestinian front and the idea of people saying it was a, a, a mobilization from the river to the sea, suggesting from West Bank and from uh, and from Gaza. I think that the, the saying it's a Palestinian offensive means that the Palestinian agency in any diplomatic settlement means that the Americans are now aware that if they want to pursue normalization or peace, as they're calling it, remember Biden was deprioritizing the region yeah. and outsourcing policy to Brett McGurk and some of these others, the Palestinians are reminding everybody, you can't go over our heads. You have to talk to us. And that in itself is a mighty victory that has left Netanyahu floundering to try to find a way to de-escalate in a manner in which he will not have to recognize that political agency. Now, one news that came out this past week was that the Egyptians argue they had notified, they had told the uh, Israelis that a something was brewing in Gaza and they had forewarned them of a possible attack, yet Netanyahu's government ignored uh, those calls. Um, can you give me your, your view on that? It seems that, I mean, I think uh, I'm right in saying that some uh, Israeli defense sources have, have today or yesterday have accepted that uh, they were given this tip off and maybe they didn't take it very seriously. What does that tell us about uh, how the Israelis maybe viewed the Palestinians? And maybe there is a, a feeling that potentially they allowed this to happen. What's your view on that? I think that Sisi's relationship with Israel is a complicated one. That suggests that I'm going to justify it, but I'm not. What I mean a complicated one is that the Wall Street Journal in the early years of Sisi's reign published a headline. I cannot remember the year. It might be 2015, 2016, but you can search it on Google. The sentence that uh, Sisi's blockade of Gaza is even worse than Israel's. Yeah. And this was the words of some of the officials. The idea being that Sisi, in his pursuit for international recognition for his coup over Mohammed Morsi, who was democratically elected, was trying to align himself and show himself to be valuable to American foreign policy in the region. And part of that was trying to provide or, or trying to prevent access via the Rafah border. For context, Mubarak, even if the border was closed, used to turn a blind eye to the tunnels underneath uh, Gaza. Yeah. The suggestion was that Sisi was destroying even those tunnels. In recent years, there have been suggestions that Sisi has relaxed and eased up on this. The second point that is worth noting is that there is confusion as to whether Egypt told Israel that there is a major offensive coming or whether Egypt told Israel that they shouldn't be complacent over the security risks, that their normalization of ties doesn't mean that the Palestinian issue is going to be quiet and that in fact their, Netanyahu's approach to ignoring the Palestinians is going to result in a security threat or the like. Uh -huh. There are reports, there, there, are, there is a huge difference of opinion. I, it, I know it sounds like I'm defending Egypt, but I'm not. I'm saying what's being reported. Yes. There is confusion as to whether the Egyptians said there is a major offensive coming and the Gazans are planning something, so be careful. Mm. Or whether the Egyptians said to Netanyahu, who's been very arrogant in recent times in his dealing with the Palestinians, whether the Egyptians said to Netanyahu, Netanyahu, 
the Palestinian cause cannot be ignored in your in your normalization talks with Saudi. Yeah. We 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 counsel you that you should take the Palestinians more seriously, or else they will revolt and they will cause a shock. And I think those are two very distinct things, because one suggests ultimate treachery, in that I sell my brother out and I won't try to warn the the Israelis that. When the other suggests would be a very normal diplomatic cable that the King of Jordan has been saying, that Erdogan has been saying, that everybody else has been saying, which is you can't ignore the Palestinians in any settlement that you make with normalization or the like. Mm. Having said that, the reason why it's such a big topic to talk about is because it shows you how far Egypt has fallen with regards to its stance regarding the Palestinian issue in the eyes of public opinion. Mubarak, for example, or let's go even before, Abdel Nasser, for example, launched a war, he said, for the sake of Palestine. Perhaps 67 was for the sake of Palestine. 73, Anwar Sadat launched a war to retake the Sinai Peninsula, which he lost, which the Egyptians lost in 1967. But the Egyptians can claim that we fought for the sake of the Palestinian brothers or the like. Mubarak, even though there was, or Sadat signed the Normalization Peace Treaty or the like, Mubarak never really developed on it. You could not say that there was really warm ties between Mubarak and the Israelis. For context, people might say, what do you mean? Look at the flights between Istanbul and Tel Aviv. They don't compare at all. I don't think there are any flights between Tel Aviv and Cairo, for example. Right. But but the point here being is Mubarak at least used to allow protests in support of Palestine, whereas Sisi perhaps has been limiting them a bit more. I think the fact that people believe that it's possible that Sisi could have sold out the Palestinians and warned Netanyahu or tried to warn Netanyahu shows how little people now think of Egypt with regards to its stance for Palestine. Mm -hmm. However, to finish on this point, I will say there's a difference between telling the Israelis that the Palestinians are going to attack next week and between telling the Israelis that if you continue on your course, there's going to be an explosion from the Palestinians, which I think any Tom, Dick and Harry on the street would have been able to tell Netanyahu. So you don't believe there's any possibility that Netanyahu realized an attack of some sort, maybe not the gravity that uh, it turned out to be, but an attack was coming and he he turned a blind eye to it in a way to uh, resolve his domestic problems. I think that it's possible that the Egyptians did tell him that the Palestinians were going to attack. Mm. I gave two scenarios primarily because we don't have the proof of either and the right. Israelis are not being clear about it either. Yeah. And the Egyptians, when they said it or when the report came out, it seems the Egyptians are quite proud of having warn Netanyahu that some security risk was coming yeah, in. Yeah. But I don't think the Egyptians would have been proud of telling Netanyahu that the Palestinians were attacking next week, which is why I think the scenario, the second scenario may be more likely. Right. If you ask me what I believe, I'm not sure. I, I, I think both scenarios are very plausible. Yeah. But I think that Netanyahu ignoring the security threat would be in line with how he perceived the situation and how the Americans perceived the situation. I'm sitting with Erdogan. I'm sitting with bin Salman. I'm yeah. sitting with bin Zayed. I'm talking to the Muslim leaders. Azerbaijan is raising my flag and they are celebrating our alliance against Iran or the like. Mm. If you're Netanyahu, why are you going to worry about the Palestinians? Who's going to help the Palestinians? Saudi Arabia is talking to Iran. The, the, the hot spots in Syria and Iran are supposed to be cooling down at some point. If you're Netanyahu and somebody tells you that there's a security coming from Palestine, you're not immediately going to say, Wallahi, these oh, he doesn't say Wallahi, but you're not immediately going to say the Palestinians, oh, this is a serious threat. It may be, oh, whatever. I don't think they can do anything because of, and that's why, like, and bear in mind, when we use the word unprecedented, Israelis are saying the word unprecedented, yeah. it's because they believe that even if the Palestinians were to attack, they would never have been able to achieve what they achieved in this latest attack in taking settlements and managing to send rockets all the way to Ben Gurion Airport and having the airport closed two hours before or three hours before I got here for the recording, the reports, Ben Gurion Airport is now closed and planes are being turned away. More than 72 hours after the conflict, 
uh, has started and more than 72 hours after Gaza has been bombarded and pounded. So I think the scale of it, I think not even the ordinary Palestinians would have been able to envisage it. So how would you have expected Netanyahu to take it seriously? Um, there is an interesting uh, analysis of you, Sammy, when I, when I hear you speak, um, because you're a political analyst and I see a lot of political an analysis, pretty bad political analysis on social media, actually, on, on YouTube. Um, you follow the events, you try to make sense of the events, and when you can't, you give options. Uh, that seems to me to be a very particular way of, of, uh, of doing political analysis, but also a very granular way of, uh, uh, of conducting uh, political analysis. How important is it to have a real understanding of the events and, and, this, and the, the issues almost on a daily basis to be able to form opinions? Because I get the impression most people, Muslims, even non-Muslims, journalists, don't really have that sometimes. I think that, look, politics is, in my opinion, politics is a science of human relations in, the, in that the same way that a human being feels anger, jealousy, fear, concern, despair is the same way that states feel because states are run by human beings. What I mean is in this context is the same way you feel uncertainty about an event that is unfolding is the same way states feel uncertainty. Mm. And I think the easy example to give in the context of the topic that we're talking about is to look at the way the statements have developed over the past 72 hours with regards to what has been happening in Palestine. Right. Let's start, for example, with the Turkish position and we'll work from there. We'll go through the geopolitical powers. Please, yeah. Turkey starts, for example, when Erdogan comes out, Erdogan gives an unprecedented statement with regards to what's happening in Palestine. What I mean is, we all know over the past decade, whenever Erdogan used to talk about Israel, it used to be Israel is a terrorist state. Israel is violating international law. Israel is conducting genocide. Israel, he compared Netanyahu to Hitler. Hmm. This time he gave an unprecedented statement in which he didn't go after Israel. Instead, he called for restraint on all parties hmm. and tried to present Turkey as a diplomatic effort, which suggests that Erdogan, who I'm convinced his convictions lie much closer with the Palestinians, far closer with the Palestinians than the Israelis, which means that Erdogan is in a position whereby he doesn't want to offend Netanyahu. Netanyahu, put yourself in Erdogan's position. In the G20 summit, the UAE, Saudi, and Israel announced the Middle East corridor that's going to go India, it's going to cross a short journey on the sea, then it's going to land in the UAE, go to Saudi, then go to Jordan, then Israel and into Europe. <laughs> Turkey is bypassed completely. Yes. This will have sweeping economic consequences for Turkey. Erdogan is trying to get the Israelis to say, don't go via Jordan and Saudi, go via Turkey, we make more sense geographically. Erdogan is very aware that these plans are becoming advanced and he wants to deter the Israelis from doing it because it will completely change the landscape of the region. Mm. Erdogan is also keen as a result of his economic crisis to build a joint pipeline with the Israelis. Remember, for, the, for those who don't, who, who don't remember, the reason Erdogan got involved in Libya in the first place was because if you open a map of the Mediterranean, you will see that Egypt, uh, Syria, Cyprus, Greece, and Israel, all of them have the ability to put a chokehold on Turkish maritime interests. Erdogan announced a unilateral border with Libya that cuts through all of them in order to break that maritime chokehold and then sent his troops to Libya to rescue the internationally recognized government to ensure that no deal can be struck without Turkey's permission. When Turkey bullied the rest of the states into establishing a maritime zone favorable to Turkey, Turkey changed its approach to one that is more come let's sit down and talk. And part of that is about Israel as well. He tried to invite the Israeli energy minister and that was ruined by what happened in Gaza afterwards. 
But the point is, Erdogan believes that as a result of the tenuous economic situation and the chokehold that almost formed in the Mediterranean, and I had to break by force by the Bayraktars, and I won't be able to break it by force again because they'll know that it's coming. No one believed Erdogan would intervene at the time. Mm. He wants to talk to the Israelis to build a gas pipeline to establish shared economic interest mm. to ensure that threat never emerges again. Yeah. So when the Palestinians are now revolting against the Israelis, Erdogan says to himself, I'm now in advanced talks with Netanyahu. I invited him to Ankara. The only reason he didn't come to Ankara was because he had to go to hospital because he had a heart problem. And people, I have enough credit with the Muslim world to talk to Netanyahu about my economic interests. People will say I'm doing it for weakness or whatever. Mm. I don't want to offend Netanyahu over an offensive that might achieve nothing. So this was Erdogan's stance being about restraint. 72 hours later, Erdogan starts, gives a speech in which he completely changes his rhetoric and goes back to what we're used to hearing from Erdogan that Israel is considering to, to put genocide. Why does the US send the warship? Mm -hmm. This is Israel's fault and this is all Israel's problem. And it's the occupation, it's because you don't give rights to the Palestinians. The reason that has changed is because Erdogan fears that the Palestinians might achieve something via this offensive and he doesn't want the historians to write that Turkey was on the wrong side of what is unfolding. The point here being is that when you're looking at scenarios or the like, then going back to your question, yeah. Erdogan said, look, if the Palestinians fail, I haven't offended Netanyahu. And if the Palestinians look like they have momentum, I will come out with a statement that says that I support them. Mm -hmm. And if the Israelis push even further, then I'll mobilize the OIC and the like. You leave your options open. So the political analyst, when he gives the scenarios, in effect, he's doing exactly what the policymaker is doing. Consider Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Mohammed bin Salman spoke to Fox News and told them we are getting closer every single day to normalization of ties with Israel. While bin Salman is talking about that I won't let go of the Palestinians, Reuters publishes an exclusive in which it says that the Saudi officials, or they said regional officials, but the sentiment here is the Saudis. Mm. The consensus is the Saudis who said this, that bin Salman has said to the Americans and said to the Israelis mm. that, I, that look, if you can give me a NATO-style security agreement and you give me nuclear technology, I'm willing to accept that and say we can talk about a Palestinian state. And one thing that was noteworthy is the White House statement went from talking about a Palestinian state to preserving a negotiations over a two-state solution, mm. suggesting a shift in the rhetoric that's taking place. Mohammed bin Salman in the statements during this period of talk about normalization stopped using the word ihtilal. He stopped using the word occupation stopped using the word colonization to describe Israel. In one of the statements, he puts Israelia between quotation marks. <laughs> Israel between, suggesting the quotation marks is for him to say, I don't recognize them, but Israelia is to say to the Israelis, look, I'm not calling you an occupation or whatever anymore. That's, so bin Salman in the buildup has been using that language. But in the statement when the Palestinians suddenly took back land, bin Salman came out in a strong statement to say we condemn Quwat al-Ihtilal, the, the forces of the occupation, the forces of the colonizer. Bin Salman has not overnight decided to abandon normalization. He hasn't overnight decided to stop talking to Netanyahu. Something else has triggered that change. Bin Salman has said to himself that I have a population that is overwhelmingly sympathetic to the Palestinians. I'm already being accused of selling them out and I'm not in a position where I can be seen to be selling them out. I have to push this narrative that I'm arguing for a Palestinian state. To preserve myself from criticism that I'm against public opinion. And bin Salman tends to buckle much quicker than bin Zayed. Mm. Let me release a statement saying colonization. But Ukav newspaper, Saudi's national newspaper, on the front page, I won't celebrate the Palestinians. 
So on the front page, they've got Bin Salman the day after. So on the front page, they had Bin Salman on the top left celebrating economic development. On the top right, they had a picture of King Salman about another particular issue. And on the bottom corner, they have the destruction of Gaza. And they said there is a destruction taking place in Gaza. Mm. When all the other media was talking about unprecedented Palestinian offensive, unprecedented since 1948, mm. and Palestinians are making gains, the Saudi national newspaper was suggesting that the Palestinians have messed up. And Saudi Tutarati now is in a schizophrenia. There are commentators who are saying, we told you that we need a Palestinian solution. Mm. And there are commentators who are saying that with a normalization is not dead and the Palestinians are the reason or the cause for the conflict. Bin Salman has now three media fronts. Mm. One that calls Israel a colonizer, one that says that the, you have to give Palestinians a solution, and one that says that Palestinians are the problem. Depending how the situation goes, Bin Salman will adopt one particular course of action. The UAE. Mm. Bin Zayed is quiet in the beginning. The Palestinian offensive is, is taking place. Bin Zayed doesn't release a statement immediately, which means that Bin Salman is monitoring the situation. Why does it mean that? Because if Bin Zayed is a close friend of the Israelis and the Israelis are demanding solidarity and everybody's coming out in solidarity with the Israelis, if Bin Zayed was supremely comfortable with normalization, he would have easily come out with a statement supporting the Israelis. 24 hours later, Abdullah Bin Zayed on Twitter tweets, I've just had an extensive phone call with Anthony Blinken. Two hours after that tweet, the UAE released a statement, about two hours, three hours. The, the, the timings might be a bit off, but uh, shortly after that statement, mm. the UAE releases a statement in which it says, we condemn the escalation caused by Hamas and the Palestinians. Essentially blaming the Palestinians, which implies that Blinken must have said to them, please come out and support the Israelis or the like. UAE gets lambasted on social media, treachery and the like. The UAE tries to point to Abdel Khalik, Abdullah and other commentators who are overwhelmingly in favor of Palestine, suggesting that UAE has lifted restrictions on expressing support for Palestine. These are commentators within the UAE. These are commentators within the Abdul Khalik Abdullah was tweeting and everybody was stunned. Everybody said, wait a minute, Abdul Khalik Abdullah is in the UAE tweeting such brazen support for the Palestinians blaming the Israelis, mm. which means that Abdul Khalik Abdullah, who knows the rules in the UAE, is aware that there is a green light from above that allows people to express solidarity for Palestine, which means that Bin Zayed is very wary and monitoring the situation. Mm. If anybody accuses UAE of, of selling out, look at my commentators, they're all defending the Palestinians or the like. But even after the statement, when they get lambasted that they have criticized the Palestinians and condemned the Palestinians, Bin Zayed then announces 20 million in aid for the Palestinians. So you can see the UAE now has options. I've appeased Blinken with a statement blaming the Palestinians. I've tried to appease Arab public opinion by letting prominent UAE commentators defend the Palestinians. Mm. And I'm offering aid and to deliver aid to the Gazans to show that I can leverage my normalization of ties in favor of the Palestinians. I've left three scenarios open. If the Palestinians win, I can show I was with them. If the Palestinians lose, I can show the Israelis I was with them. There is a development of this, even with regards to the US. Mm. So we talk about the US position, we talk about only the Muslim positions. And I won't go in for everybody, but I hope people are keeping up with this. But, we, we, but I would like to ask you about the US and the Western position generally, because from afar, at least, when I look at uh, the Western stance towards it. It seems pretty monolithic. It seems like they're squarely behind the Israelis and nothing has really changed. They're pretty much, you know, even even this past day where the Israelis have now announced and have, have uh, taken steps in, in tightening the blockade around Gaza, uh, the Western countries, uh, both sides of the Atlantic, you know, bipartisan support for Israel, there's a green light for them to do whatever they want uh, and to 
to seek their defense by any means. I mean, even Keir Starmer yesterday at the Labour Party conference uh, was was not going, well, you know, this is a human rights lawyer. Uh, he was pretty clear that Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, so from afar, it seems like the Western perspective hasn't changed. I mean, from your reading, what? how do you see? Let's break this into three. three we'll look at the EU and, and, and the US yeah. and we'll see the, how internally there is deep division over how to approach it. Wow, okay. First of all, the problem with public statements is they don't often reflect the sentiment behind the scenes. Right. And we saw an example of that last week when a US military base struck down a Turkish drone. A Turkish drone flew too close. Turkey is bombarding the Kurdish populations in Syria. It's bombarding, they will be upset with that. Yeah. It's bombarding the PKK and YPG bases and the SDF and the like because they're worried about that existential threat that these armed separatist groups might pose to Turkey. Turkey yeah. Of course, these groups are allies of the US. US openly supports them and US helped them to revamp their image from PKK and YPG mm. to SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces. Mm. There's a video of a general who says it was a masterstroke to okay. include democratic in there. It made it easier. A rebranding. A rebranding. Yes. The US struck down the drone, the Turkish drone. Yeah. The Turks were livid. It's a, it, it looks public like a real slap of the hand. In public, the US justified the downing of the drone. In private, Lloyd Austin called the Turks and said, listen, like really, it was a decision that was taken by the commander at the base. It got too close. They warned it. The drone came back. Don't let this ruin the ties. And Turkey continued to bombard Syria. Or the like suggesting the Americans said, look, this is a one-off. In public, we are defending it. In private, we are sending this image in the line. Right. That's an example of how public and private don't necessarily coincide with one another. And I think that's a natural human thing in that when your subordinate does something wrong, defend your subordinate in public yeah. and lambast them in private and give them the hair dry, dry treatment. Because to uh, lambast him in public would undermine your whole leadership and your whole authority and the like. Sure. Starting from this premise, if we take a recent, we'll, we'll go on to the US because the US is a bit more common. But let's start with the EU, another example. So the EU, Oliver Valahey, if I pronounce yeah. his name correctly, Commissioner, yeah. Commissioner announced that the EU would cut all aid to Palestine, that the horrific crimes in his word of the Palestinians yes. and the horrific scenes in Palestine and Israel means we're going to cut off all aid to the Palestinians in direct contravention of international law. Yes. Everybody said this is the EU position right. and this is the French position. Then Joseph Borrell comes out a few hours later and, and it, he yeah. says, we condemns it. He goes, we're not going to stop aid yeah. to the Palestinians. Joseph then Burrell is a high representative of foreign affairs. The high representative of foreign yep. affairs, a yep. major powerful voice. Yeah. Then Antonio Guterres, head of the United Nations, says that it's immoral to stop the aid going to the Palestinians. Mm. Von der Leyen puts the Israeli flag on the EU parliament. Mm. So you have one who says I'm going to cut aid, one who says I'm not going to cut aid. Mm. And one who says we need restraint and the other puts the Israeli flag on the EU building. Right. In public, it looks like they're firmly with Israel. But these, the, when, when something spills over into the public, it may look little in public, but to get to that spillover means there are deep divisions behind the scenes in terms of how to approach this issue. Right. Spain said it would not vote for the cutting of aid, I suggesting know. that the yeah. European Union yeah. is not in unison with regards to what's happening with Israel. And members of the European Parliament are lambasting von der Leyen, telling her you are unelected, you have no right to speak on behalf of the EU mm -hmm. with regards to what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. So from afar, it looks like the EU is firmly pro-Israel. But when you look at the details, when you look at the statements, when you look at the spillover, it's abundantly clear that it cannot be said that the EU is firmly in line with Israel. Mm -hmm. Even the Keir Starmer interview that you talked about, and I watched it because I was stunned by the comment. Mm -hmm. You can feel Keir Starmer, it feels like he's walking on eggshells 
shells, trying to calculate every word, terrified that he might make a mistake and suffer the consequence of what happened with Jeremy Corbyn, which has led people to believe that Keir Starmer is a robot in his stance and it might not actually reflect his stance. I'm not defending Keir Starmer. I, I think Keir Starmer is the worst of the Labour leaders, particularly with regards to Muslim interest of life. Yeah. Now let's go to the US. So the US comes in. Put yourself in Biden's situation. One of the great things about the political risk industry is a lot of the analysis is putting yourself in the places of policymakers, but without the responsibility or consequence of the decisions. Yes. Biden has an election coming up. Biden has been flagging that normalization will be the highlight mm -hmm. of his presidency. He's failed on the Iran deal. He's failed on Syria. He's failed on Libya. He's failed on Sudan. He's failed with, in his relations with Europe. He's failed with regards to Russia. He's struggling on the issue of Ukraine. Biden wants a success, and that success was supposed to be the normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Some people have said that maybe this was a, a, a all set up by the Israelis. This analysis might answer some of that. Mm -hmm. Biden is on the verge. Bin Salman is telling him that I'm willing to compromise on the Palestinian issue, and part of my job is to sit with diplomats privately, and I advise governments, I advise foreign ministries, European foreign ministries, I've advised the, the State Department before and the like. And in private meetings, and I'm not allowed to say who or with who, the diplomats have all said that the Saudis never talked to them about Palestinians. They have no plan for the Palestinians. And in the words of a particular diplomat, that the Saudis sort of said to one delegation, you write for us what you want for the Palestinians and we'll go with it. Mm. But the point here being is that Biden has been told by bin Salman, Palestine is not a priority. Biden has the issue of getting the deal through Congress. Congress won't vote for a NATO-style agreement with Saudi Arabia. So Reuters suggests that what Biden is going to do is to move the fifth fleet or send another fleet in the same way they do for Bahrain, where they don't have an official NATO-style agreement, but the fifth fleet is designed to protect Bahrain from Iran. Mm -hmm. They'll send a fleet that is ordered to protect Saudi at all costs. So Biden is already making the concession on that part. Biden, the Israelis have privately agreed, again, according to Reuters and Axios, yeah. They've agreed to allow nuclear technology for Saudi Arabia. So the second demand for bin Salman is beginning to be filled. Mm. The idea being that everything was proceeding and moving and Netanyahu in the UN was flaunting his map and saying that we're on the cusp of normalization with Saudi Arabia. People keep looking at the Saudi statements. I don't think that Israel or Biden would be so loud about negotiations if they didn't feel they were proceeding in a manner that was moving forward. Mm. So the US, when it sees this escalation, what do you think Biden's immediate reaction is? Biden's immediate reaction is not go and bomb them and go and, and do what you have to do to Palestinians. Yes. Biden's immediate reaction is my whole foreign policy prize with elections bearing down on me coming down is, is about to be ruined. So in that situation, let's go with it. We're talking scenario planning. Yeah. What do you think Biden's conversation with Netanyahu is? It's Netanyahu, I beg you, I have an election. Come on, Netanyahu, like, don't let this escalate. Don't let this go to board. And Netanyahu says to them, I can't. I've been humiliated. I've, I need to do something to the Palestinians. I have to pound them. Biden says, how long do you need? Mm. I, I, it can't go on for too long. Maybe I can allow it here and there. Now, Biden's initial reaction is, let's try to get some sort of de-escalation. And one of the things worth noting is that Blinken announced in a tweet that he had spoken to his Turkish counterpart. And in the tweet, you know how foreign ministers, they have a team who run their Twitter accounts. Yeah. They put the tweet, they say, we talked to our counterpart about so-and-so, and we agreed on the need for an immediate whatever, in this case, ceasefire. Blinken's Twitter account posted a tweet that said that we talked to the Turkish foreign minister, and we agreed on the need for a swift ceasefire. Within one hour, that tweet came down. It was edited, and Blinken said, we have ironclad support for the Israelis, which suggests that in the room where Blinken sat with his team, 
Somebody said that we should pursue ceasefire and the other person said, no, we shouldn't pursue ceasefire, which suggests division of policy. They're not agreed with regards to the policy of what's going on. So Biden now is trying to rescue normalization. Talk of ceasefire, then reining back on ceasefire. Ask yourself, why would they roll back on ceasefire? It would be as a result of talks with Israel. Why would Netanyahu not want a ceasefire? Because Netanyahu believes he's been humiliated by the Palestinians and he badly needs to crush them. Why? Because the Israeli journalists domestically are calling for his resignation. Haaretz has a front page spread. This is Netanyahu's fault. And you're building these scenarios. So Biden went from, oh my goodness, the normalization deal is in jeopardy. And then Biden sees Republican candidates we are firmly with Israel. Go and hit them. Lindsey Graham says this is a religious war. Yeah. If one says it has to be a religious war against Muslims, that can only be his interpretation. Exactly. Nikki Haley says go and get them. Jordan Peterson, somebody who I never understood why Muslims really rave and, and like him a lot. Yes. Jordan Peterson says give them hell. Biden now sees that the Republicans are coming out heavily in favor of Israel. Donald Trump. Donald Trump coming in favor of Israel. Now he has to outmatch them because his prize was supposed to be normalization. He's livid that that prize has been blown out of the water as of the escalation. Mm -hmm. So he has to adapt. He's seen the mood. So now he changes his rhetoric. But the point I'm making is from far away, it looks like that the US resolve for Israel was rock solid from the beginning. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to argue and what I think happened is that Biden's stance has evolved from the first hour he received the news right. to now. It's gone from Netanyahu, please don't let this go on. And now he's pressured by the Republicans and Netanyahu to continue supporting. And I think what's very interesting, and I know I've gone on on this, but I think no. what's very interesting is yeah. that the Americans sent an aircraft carrier to Israel, but didn't say it was to support the Israelis in their attack against the Palestinians. They said it was to prevent other regional powers from getting involved and taking advantage of it. In other words, they sent it in order Biden wants a guarantee that what's happening is that Israel and Palestine will fight each other. Iranians won't get involved. Nobody else will get involved. The Americans will be careful not to get involved too much mm. because what Biden wants is to publicly show ironclad support for the Israelis while begging the Qataris to try to come to some sort of deal in which the hostages are exchanged between Palestine and Israel. The de-escalation will take place. Biden can claim that he gave ironclad support to the Israelis by sending Blinken to Tel Aviv and giving the aircraft carrier while equally rescuing an environment in which there might be normalization of ties because the Saudis haven't yet called an Arab League meeting. They're supposed to be meet on the day that we're hosting, but four days into the conflict and still no Arab League meeting. Mm -hmm. Somebody made, made a joke on Twitter. <laughs> I said that the Arab League meeting, I'm meeting on Wednesday. He said, why so soon? Why are they rushing to, to meet with Arab League? But the point here being is Saudi hasn't taken any drastic steps. OIC hasn't had an emergency summit. There's no Imran Khan, for example, to come out and in the way that he was very trigger happy with the OIC, you know, Palestine and Kashmir or the like. Erdogan is very careful, doesn't want to provoke too much. Biden will say, look, yes, it was a disaster for normalization, but I've saved. But the de-escalation has come about at a time in which I can give ironclad support to Israel and rescue the environment for normalization. But the point of all that I've said is mm. the suggestion is always that Stances don't shift. They shift every single hour depending on the news. But here is where we bring the Palestinians into it. It's shifting because the Palestinians are forcing the shift. It's the Palestinians who were supposed to have, their cause was supposed to be dying. They were supposed to be irrelevant. Their action is causing all of the shifting in Ankara, in Riyadh, in Abu Dhabi, in Paris, in the UK, in Washington, with Blinken, with Biden, with the Republicans. The Palestinians that we thought were weak, Staffala, I never thought they were weak, but other people might have thought they were weak. Yeah. The Palestinians who we thought had no agency are forcing all of these policymakers to come up with all these various different scenarios. And that's why going back to your 
your, your question, and I'll finish on this point, in which you said, you know, you're an analyst who, if you don't know, you give the scenarios. Mm. You give the scenarios because even the decision makers themselves have not made a decision. And the scenarios will adapt according to the situation. Hezbollah has not gotten involved yet. There's always these talks that Hezbollah might cross the border, Hezbollah might cross the border, but Hezbollah hasn't. Ask yourself why. How do you understand these uh, rocket attacks across the border from Lebanon to... The reality Israel? is that there's news of rocket attacks. But yeah. let's take, for example, the rocket attack that took place within the first 48 hours. Yeah. The 48, within the first 48 hours, and people forgive me, it's been a rough three days. Mm. Some of the timings might be off, but they'll, they'll be roundabout. Mm. Hezbollah attacked what is recognized as contested areas, yes. not Israel proper. Yeah. They attacked contested areas, and the reason they attacked contested areas, in my opinion, is to send a message to the Israelis, which is we don't want an all-out conflict with you. Right. We don't want this to spread to the Lebanese border, but we can't be seen to be abandoning Hamas, right. and we can't be seen to be abandoning the Palestinians. We want to send you a message that says, please tone down in what you're doing with the Palestinians, mm. but we're not ready to fight you for it right. at this stage. You haven't gone far enough. Which is why I think it's fascinating that a ground offensive hasn't happened yet despite 72 hours mm -hmm. or even longer into the conflict. Right. It's as if even the Israelis are aware that we're pounding Gaza with airstrikes, but we're not sure what the reaction will be with a ground offensive because a ground offensive would force everybody to reconsider their options. So as if everybody is sort of looking at each other mm -hmm. and saying, we're going to allow this amount, the airstrikes, but not enough for all And I think Israel understood the message, which is why they sent a few flares they sent a rocket that killed two Hezbollah mm. soldiers, mm. but even the Hezbollah did not really react to the killing of the two soldiers, right. suggesting Hezbollah interpreted it as an accident as opposed to an actual attack. And the reason why I mention all this is to show that a lot of people want to talk about this issue as if it's black and white. Right. But everybody involved, including Netanyahu, has no idea what's going to be coming in the next few days. And everybody's making decisions in a fog of war. And everyone's trying to prevent that escalation and try to pursue a de-escalation in a way that suits their interests. So what's amazing here is that the Palestinians have, in effect, upended the strategic calculations, the long-term strategic thinking of all of the powers, including the United States. And they've, have to, uh, they've had to put together strategies and, and, and revise those strategies depending on the events. And that, that's pretty amazing, actually, from, from what you've, you've said. But, but it's a huge victory. Yeah. And one of the things that, that is worth noting in this part in the beginning of the conflict, one of the reasons that Israel is so adamant on the narrative war and why Netanyahu is resisting a de-escalation at this moment in time yeah. is because there's something else that's major that the Palestinians achieved aside from their agency here, yeah. which is that if you remember in the first few hours and people were talking about terrorists have crossed, in, have crossed into Israel and they are, yeah. and then Al Jazeera published a video or showed a video of the Palestinian fighters with a Jewish woman who is terrified yeah. and she's holding her baby. And the yeah. Palestinians are shouting, Usturuha, Usturuha. Cover her, cover her and reassure her and show her the humanity that we have that the apartheid regime doesn't have. Mm -hmm. When that video went viral, people translated it and went viral. I, 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 I put, just to give you a content in terms of viral, I only have about maybe 45,000 followers on Twitter or the like. Only, Sammy. But, but in comparison to others. But within 24 hours, that translation got to 1 million. On Omar bin Abdelaziz's account, it got to 8 million. On somebody else's account, it got to 2 million. On another person with 3 million, it went viral. Because suddenly people were like, wait a minute, there's humanity here. And those who've seen Channel 12, that Israeli settler, when she's talking and she says, they came into my house. Yeah. 
And they said, well, what did they do? What did they do? And, and she goes, well, the first thing he said to me was, I won't harm you. I'm Muslim. And I wanted a banana or something. And, yes. she, and, and, she, and she says, I, it, the statement put me off. I won't harm you because I'm Muslim. Yes. She goes, it put me off, but I felt suddenly at ease. Mm. And they walked around the house for two hours. One of them asked me for a banana and then they left. Mm. The thing that the Israelis are panicking and why they're not de-escalating yet, and I know we'll go into it later on, mm. is that the image of the Palestinians has transformed in mainstream public opinion. Mm. In the beginning when all these Palestinians, Muhammad al-Kurd and Hussein Zumlot, you could sense the wave even amongst non-Muslim audiences that wait a minute, wait, these Palestinians actually have a point. Why do they have to condemn themselves when they have this situation? And I'm seeing what the fighters are look like. I'm not saying that there are no atrocities in war. War is a nasty, nasty. I, I come from my, my maternal side is an Algerian background. Yeah. The war for liberation saw huge atrocities, horrific things on the on the on the path to liberation. Mm. I do think that it's interesting that in law, generally, I studied law at uni. There is this concept of diminished responsibility where a victim is never held to the same accountability as somebody who is not a victim. I think that's very important in this context of Palestine. But the point here being is that you are marveling as well at how the Palestinians are changing the, the policy-making considerations. They've also changed the image. And that's one of the reasons that Israel feels not only have I been humiliated by the Palestinians, but th they might actually be able to rip the cover off my propaganda. I was telling the world these are barbarians and these are animals and people are now seeing them as magnanimous fighters. This is a disaster. Let's tell the world they beheaded 40 babies, for example. But do you think that's changing? I mean, today we've seen this horrific story, you know, which is just a made up story about 40 uh, babies that have been beheaded in, you know, in a village in, 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 uh, uh, in southern Israel and, and the public opinion seems to be shifting, especially here in the West. Um, do you think the Israelis are now coming together and, and developing a more coherent strategy to change that narrative? First of all, let me rescue you from the YouTube comments. When you say Southern Israel, you're using it to make it easier for people to identify on a map, mm. not because it's it's actually Southern Israel. Sure. Yeah. So let, let's get that aside because mm. I know people pick up on every single sure. sentence. Yeah. The, the second point that is worth noting is that I think that certainly over the past 24 hours, I think that mainstream media is having a very deep debate within itself. Was it wise to bring these eloquent Palestinians? Right. But I think the reason they brought them was because they didn't know they were eloquent. Yeah. Bear in mind, there is this is a new generation of Palestinians. Right. They are tech savvy. They speak English, fluent, yeah. and they're able to convey themselves eloquently. This is, I don't want to insult the previous generations. They are very brave generations, mm. but there is a consensus that this is quite unprecedented. Yeah. The idea that you don't have to have a translator now to, to, to bring the Palestinian view. Yeah. When Hussam Zumlut came and shut down the presenter when she asked him to condemn himself, mm. and he says to her, look, 200 Palestinians died last month, you didn't bring me here. Mm. Five Israelis die and you drag me here and you tell me to condemn myself or that. Yeah. When those things went viral, I think the media didn't realize how eloquent these Palestinians are. Mm. Even the guy from Gaza on BBC, when he came, he said, we have nothing to lose. Like, we have... I, So I think the media sort of got together. Again, I'm speculating, but I think the media got together and said, wait a minute. We were supposed to bring these people, they tell themselves, to give balanced coverage. Yes. Whatever. Yeah. But it appears that our coverage has been more favorable to the Palestinians as a result of these Palestinian guests. And that's why it was quite interesting that Noura Arikat, for example, somebody who's worth following on Twitter, a lawyer mm. in the US, yeah. she actually put out and said that her three interviews were suddenly cancelled by CNN and by some of these other media outlets as well. Have you had interviews that have been cancelled? I've had a couple of interviews that have been cancelled, but, 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 but for me, it's, I, I, but with regards to this in particular, I think that when it comes to the media, I think that 
it's less about being anti-Palestinian and more about the pressure from the Israelis. Mm. I think it's the Israelis saying, why are you giving these people airtime when they are justifying terrorism in their words? Right. And I think what made it really difficult for the media is that the guests who were coming on were not Hamas. And a lot of them were not even from Gaza. They were from the West Bank, from the Palestinian Authority, yeah. who are known to have differences with Hamas. When Mustafa Barghouti spoke with Farid Zakaria, for example, yeah. Mustafa Barghouti from the Palestinian Authority, and then, of course, and then he ran for his own presidential campaign afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mustafa Barghouti gave a very eloquent account responding to Farid Zakaria talk about terrorism. Yeah. And the response went viral. I was seeing non-Muslims who in the past had supported Israel saying this interview has changed my perspective of what's happening with regards to the Palestinians. Uh -huh. I think if you're a media editor-in-chief and I work it, and you know, I, I, I work in media, yeah. I know that medias have considerations and sometimes media want to push a particular message and they do that via choosing good guests. I think when the editorial team comes together, they come and they sit and they say, hang on a second, these Palestinians have made excellent points, but I'm not yet convinced and I'm worried because I've been brought up to be taught that the Israelis are the good guys and the Palestinians are the bad guys. And I'm terrified that in my heart as an editor, that I'm beginning to sympathize with the Palestinians and that's because of the guests that I'm bringing. Mm. And that's why I think what we're seeing is that Palestinians, a lot of them are, are reporting that the interviews are being canceled. I think the media are saying, look, this is causing controversy, let's let's keep it out of here. Right. But I think that having said that, I know people like to paint the media with a broad brush, but credit where credit is due. The issue of the 40 babies being beheaded, which hasn't been confirmed. The reason why I, why I resent the fact it's being shared is because it hasn't been confirmed. Whether it's happened or not, you shouldn't say something until it's confirmed. When journalists were reporting it, and we've seen today, the morning of when we're recording, we've seen now a lot of papers have put it in quotation marks. Yeah. Front page. Front page. Yeah. In quotation marks from an IDF source. Mm. Any journalist with integrity would never print news that came from one source mm. and that source happens to be a party to the conflict from the IDF itself. Yeah. And that's why I thought it quite interesting that Dominic Waghorn, if I pronounce his name correctly, the foreign correspondent for Sky News, mm. actually came out in a tweet and said, this is very irresponsible. Mm. We haven't corroborated. And by all journalistic standards, we shouldn't even be sharing this news until it's been confirmed. And a dollar agency even called the Israelis through their contacts. Yeah. And the Israelis said, we have no proof of it. The Israelis said, had no proof. The source was an I-24 reporter who came out and said that a soldier has told me that, the bay, that they've seen it. Mm. And then she later said, wait, I didn't see it. So it all has this, this, and the reason it was shared is because it exposed the Islamophobic tropes that people were tended to be inclined towards. Yeah. But what I liked about the Sky News Foreign Correspondent and even Sky News, Sky News brought in their show with the paper front pages. They said, look, the papers are saying 40 babies. We've seen nothing to corroborate it. There's only one source, it's the IDF, which is dubious in and of itself. And I like that. I thought that was, and that's why I think sometimes when you paint things or look at things in black and white, you miss the opportunities. Opportunities are always in gray. And one of the reasons why I think sometimes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, When he says those who call to Allah, when Allah elevates the idea of da'wah, it's because what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling you is, don't just talk to those who are your friends or who believe, go and talk to other people because this is the best kind of speech. Talk to those who are against you, engage them. That's what you should be doing. And part of engaging them is the way of Mus'ab ibn Umayr, the first diplomat in Islam who went to Medina and Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh is threatening him. Mm. And Mus'ab ibn Umayr says to him, Ya Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, hear what I have to say. If you don't like it, you can go your way and I'll leave you afterwards. Mm. And I think sometimes Muslims in our, 
I don't want to say our trauma, because alhamdulillah, I'm, I have a very optimistic image of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I'm very optimistic in his power, and I always believe Allah is in supreme control and able to change everything. And Surah Hud is a good reminder of these things. But the point is, I think that some Muslims sometimes, in their anger, and in the, 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 tra the, the subconscious trauma, they forget to look for the opportunities and are, all, and are straight away looking for the battle. Mm -hmm. And I think in the media, we should be aware that there are opportunities. And the Palestinians have been able to use that to maximum effect. And that's why the Israelis are panicking and peddling this fake news, including the one about the girl that they said Hamas had paraded, that they had killed and paraded. And Newsweek reported yesterday that she's in a hospital being treated for her injuries. Mm -hmm. So I think that with regards to the media, and you talk about the media being one-sided, I think it's more complicated than that. Certainly there's been a shift in the tide in that the media are confused, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's the media saying, oh, let's support the Israelis. I think it's the media saying, the Palestinians were so good on our platforms. Are we doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. And I think it's about now capitalizing on that momentum to say to the media, or even through the social media platforms, look, we can actually make a difference. The final point worth making noting is on, the, on this is, the decentralization of information has helped this cause a lot. I think that even- Social media. Social media. I think even I have deep misgivings about Elon Musk. I'll, I'll put it quite bluntly. I'm not one of those who, who sees and, and celebrates with it. But. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The restrictions that he's lifted on X or Twitter or whatever it is, <laughs> has resulted in the proliferation of the Palestinian narrative, the truth of what's happening on the ground, that has allowed it to reach so many people. And those who used to dominate the narrative are complaining and calling it disinformation. What they're complaining about is that they are saying without proof that Hamas beheaded 40 babies, but videos of babies actually having been killed by the Israelis have gone viral. On social media. Is that why you think the EU Commission sent this letter? This is to... exactly the point I was making. And this is why I think the EU, which is deeply concerned, or not the EU, we just said the EU is divided. Mm. This is why I think that people in the EU are so concerned that the Palestinians have been so effective in conveying their narrative yeah. in an unprecedented manner that they are trying to warn Elon Musk and trying to warn social media to rein in 
the proliferation of this information because what they're terrified of is that the people that the Israelis said for 70 years were beasts and backwards and people who should be exterminated, yeah. they are terrified that the world is seeing them something that Israel is so frightened of, which is that they are actually human and not the beast that Israel insists. So let's talk about this possible ground attack. Now, the Israelis have moved 300,000 uh, troops on the so-called frontier with Gaza, and there seems to be uh, ever so uh, clear evidence that there are uh, looking to start a ground offensive. Uh, how likely, in your mind, is a ground uh, offensive likely in the next few days? I think that it's easier to explain. The short answer is, I don't know. Hmm. And it's easy to explain the answer of, I don't know, by thinking that Israel at this moment is like a tiger that's had its tail stepped on. So it's weighing things up. So not weighing things up, it's in a hysteria. Uh. Israel is in an unprecedented situation. Right. Israel has just been humiliated by Palestinians that it looks down upon. They've taken land back from the Israelis. Rockets have landed in Tel Aviv. Ben-Gurion airport has been shut. There was even a photo or a video, I'm not sure if it's corroborated or not, that showed a former president actually trying to flee via Ben-Gurion airport uh, as well. I think that for the Israelis, there is this hysteria in that the world has seen us humiliated. How can we address this humiliation? We took the lands back and people are still talking about Palestinian victory. We've bombarded Gaza and they're still talking about victory. When can we get to a point where we feel the sense that we have wiped away this humiliation that the Palestinians have incurred upon us. And that's why I think that where people before have said that Israel might be reined in, I think this hysteria is where there is the greatest threat. And this is why people say they don't know. Israel has amassed for this grand invasion or the like. But the reality is that they've amassed it because Netanyahu's ego is hurt. Netanyahu is, being, is under pressure to resign from his position for bringing the greatest calamity to Israel, according to Israeli journalists, to Israel. Netanyahu is waiting for this point at which he can say to the Israelis, I've humiliated the Palestinians and now they've gone back home. And I strike the comparison with the uprising in Stephen, Algeria in 1945. In 1945, France was liberated from Germany and France was celebrating. And on the same day, the Algerians in Stephen took to the streets and Gelma and other places to say that this UN charter of yours looks amazing. It says every man is born free and freedom. And we really like what you're saying in this charter and we like this sudden reflection. We want it as well. We want to be free as well. And the French result and some of the, the groups in Algeria launched an attack on some of the French colonizers or the like. The French were brutal in their reprisals. But the reason they were brutal was because they said, if we're soft, it will encourage Algerians to start challenging us. We have to give them a lesson that is so brutal and so hard and so decisive. We have to shed so much blood. We have to make it, as in the words of Goldemir, we have to make it so that they fear the death of their children more than they hate us. We have to utterly deliver a reprisal, a sweeping communal punishment in order to prevent this from happening. The irony, of course, is 17 years later, the France were kicked out by the Algerians. It ended up sparking a movement that the Algerians eventually led to war for liberation. But Israel is in this state that given that the Palestinians, who last week we were saying were at their weakest point, that the Palestinian cause is dying, given that now thousands of people are on the tens of thousands of people are on the streets in Jordan, thousands are on the streets in Yemen, Thousands are on the streets in, in, in other Muslim countries supporting Palestine. Given that there's this wave, Bin Salman is buckling. He's calling me a colonizer again. Erdogan is buckling. He was sitting with me, sharing tea with me, and now he's saying that I'm whatever. UAE is buckling. It's uh, starting to give aid, and Abdul Khalak Abdullah out loud is supporting the Palestinians. All these people who are begging me 
to speak to the US and the Congress, they're all buckling one by one. I need to send a lesson. These Palestinians have committed something so grave. I have to pound them and demolish them. And until they believe that the price for resistance is too high. And the, going back to your question, the reason this links to your question is, does a ground invasion serve that purpose? Because Netanyahu has done ground invasions before and he's failed every time. The reason why he's failed is one, he never seems to exterminate Hamas or the other Palestinian groups. The second is Israelis don't have an appetite for a high death toll. Mm -hmm. When the ground invasion goes in and then there's a delay, even now, look, for example, people will see the pictures of Gaza being pummeled and pounded. And then you'll see a simultaneous video of rockets landing in Ashkelon or landing in Tel Aviv. So on the one hand, I'm seeing pictures that the Palestinians are being decimated and obliterated. And, and the buildings are. And it's a tra honestly, it's, it's a huge tragedy that moves the heart. It's so upsetting. Mm. But how, where are these rockets coming from? How is it that they are still firing those rockets? Yeah. And that's the question the Israelis will say. That if you do a ground offensive, and he might do a ground offensive, but Netanyahu is weighing the risk at this moment. It's one of the scenarios. If I go into Gaza and I end up there three, four, five, six days and rockets still land in Tel Aviv, with what face do I face the Israeli people? People will laugh at me. Yes, I may kill 2,000 Gazans or 3,000 Gazans, yeah. but they have nothing to lose. They're used to it for 70 years. My people, the Israelis, are not used to it. And that's why I think that the question, I started with, I don't know, mm. but I'm trying to go through the process of why I don't know, because Netanyahu himself is probably doesn't know either. Mm. Netanyahu has been trying to form a government, and I think I just read just before we started, literally breaking news, Netanyahu and Benny Gantz have managed to form a government. The fact it took 72 hours to form a war government or longer than 72 hours suggests how deep the divisions are between the various different factions. Regardless, they've managed to unite. But that still doesn't mean there will be a ground offensive. It may well be that there is. Mm. But even if there is a ground offensive, it's important to put it into context. A ground offensive would be conducted in order to serve the purpose, to send a message to everybody that your opinion that the Palestinian cause is alive is false and here I am crushing it. But history shows, and that's why I gave the Algeria example, that the French did exactly the same. They killed 30,000 people in less than a week. And 17 years later, their 132 years of occupation was finished. And that's why I think that Netanyahu, the lessons from history suggest that Netanyahu is making a grave mistake in putting his ego ahead of the safety of the people that he claims to protect. So Netanyahu had to, has to satiate the, uh, the bloodlust that Israeli public opinion required from him. Um, but, you know, many Israeli ministers have suggested that uh, victory would not be achieved unless Hamas is completely dismantled. In fact, Netanyahu gave that speech where he said that the outcome of this would be a change in the Middle East. So they've set the bar quite high. An aerial bombardment alone is not going to solve that problem, as you've just demonstrated. So it seems to me that the options are narrowing for Netanyahu and, it, and he needs to send in a ground force of some sort in order to dismantle Hamas. I think that to put us into, and, and, and this, is the, this is the darker part of, of, of my role as a consultant sometimes for the clients, in that the easiest way to analyze these things is to put yourself in the position of people that you perhaps wouldn't like to be in, in, in another life. If I put myself in Netanyahu's position, again, billah, mm. and imagine you are Benny Gantz. Let me get you, let me, let me drag you into this scenario as well. Yes. Let's say you're Benny Gantz and I'm, and I'm Netanyahu. Yes. And you're telling me, for example, I'm not going to join the government except these conditions, this condition, this condition. Mm. And I'm Netanyahu. I'm on the verge of going down in history as the worst prime minister in Israeli history. I'm about to go down in history as the person who brought the greatest threat to Israel since Golda Meir. Golda Meir resigned after the Six-Day War. 
because the Israelis blamed her for her intelligence failures in allowing Egypt and Syria to cross and, and break those Israeli defensive lines. They didn't even penetrate Israel proper. Right. People always look at 1973. In 1973, when the Egyptians broke the Israeli line, they broke the Israeli line in Sinai, yes. not Israel proper. When the Syrians broke the Israeli line, they broke the Israeli line around the Golden Heights, not in Israel proper. Since 1948, there's never been a penetration of Israel proper. So Netanyahu would go down in history as worse than Golda Meir. He would go down in history as the person who brought Israel the worst disaster since it was announced that it was a state itself. Netanyahu, if, you're, if you are Netanyahu, over my dead body am I leaving this office in the current situation. Mm. I desperately need something to show for it. And, and I have Benny Gantz breathing down my neck and the other Israelis arguing for my resignation. They've been arguing it before over my judicial reforms. They're pressuring me. The journalists are telling me I should resign. There's a viral video in Israel of two people who lost their family members in the assault who are saying that I blame Netanyahu and it's your fault. I hold you responsible. It's gone viral. Millions of views in Israel itself. Netanyahu is saying, I can't leave. If I leave now, my personal, his legacy is going to be in tatters. And that's why I think that the question Netanyahu asks himself is, is there an alternative way aside from a ground invasion? Because Netanyahu has always failed in the ground invasions. Hmm. Netanyahu, you said they set the bar high. They always set the bar high. They always say they're going to exterminate Hamas. They always say they're going to pummel Gaza. They always say, and it may well be this time they might be more serious than they were before. But what I'm saying is we don't judge based on the statements. We judge based on the circumstances that they find themselves in. Right. If the, they do launch a ground invasion, let's suppose that they do, and it is possible. If they launch a ground invasion, and the death toll starts mounting, it's hard to imagine Benny Gantz continuing to support Netanyahu. Mm. It's hard to imagine the other allies in the government supporting. It's hard to imagine Yair Lapid, who was prime minister before, saying, you know what, Netanyahu, keep going, keep going and let the Israelis... Bear in mind, more Israelis have died and I don't celebrate war, I don't celebrate death. And one thing worth noting to the Muslims, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam said that the Muslims should never wish to find the battlefield. Mm. The Muslims should never wish to find war. The Muslim should never dream of being on the battlefield. But if he finds himself in the battlefield defending something or the like, mm. then he should fight as if, yeah, I can't remember the rest, of it, but the point is he should fight with no reserves. But turns it, back, yeah. It, until, the, until the enemy turns back. Yeah. And when they turn back, the Prophet said, do not transgress. Mm. Allah says, take your justice and don't go beyond that. Right. And I think that's a very important message to the Muslims. We don't celebrate bloodlust. We don't celebrate death. And we don't celebrate war. What Muslims are celebrating is not war. They're celebrating the revival of a cause, the just cause that everybody thought was dead. This is an important distinction. And I think it's very important to stress. But going back to the point, if Netanyahu and the death toll rises and more Israelis have died over the last three days than they have since 2000 and 2019. Just think about that for a second. More Israelis have died in three days than 19 years put together. In 19 years, which have seen more than five wars between Gaza, between the Palestinians and between the Israelis. When that death toll rises, put yourself back in Netanyahu's position. Now you're sitting on a table with Benny Gantz, with Yair Lapid, with uh, these other, other Israeli politicians. It's hardly likely they're going to look at Netanyahu and say, Netanyahu, keep leading us. Mm. And Netanyahu might be forced to resign. And then another person might come in who doesn't have that baggage, the ego, and might say, you know what, let's sign a de-escalation. It may well be there's another alternative, by the way, which is not a grand evasion, which is that Netanyahu, the Qataris now are in fierce negotiations to try to find a de-escalation. The Qataris are talking to the Israelis and the Palestinians to negotiate a hostage exchange. It may well be that Netanyahu secures a deal on the hostage exchange. Instead of, to put into context, 
when Gilad Shalit in 2012-2013, I could be wrong in the year, in 2010s anyway, mm. Israeli soldier who was captured, this was a very famous case, yeah. captured by the Palestinians. Yeah. The Palestinians managed to trade him for 1,500 Palestinians. So they traded him for 1,500 Palestinians, not just fighters, Palestinians who were arbitrarily detained illegally by the Israelis. Mm. Netanyahu may say that we've traded 36 hostages for 36 hostages. So another government would have traded 1,500 Palestinians. I've only traded 36 Palestinians for 36 Israelis. It may well be he finds that. But the point here is that a grand invasion, you asked if a grand invasion is possible. I think anything is possible. Mm. Not because they've planned it, but because everybody is operating with a limited set of facts and making decisions based on that set of facts in a situation that is unprecedented. Right. Can I ask you about Egypt? Now, uh, effectively, the Rafa crossing is shut to a humanitarian corridor, but it's also shut to refugees and those who are who are injured. And uh, the Israelis have been permanently, have been destroying, in fact, and they say they're destroying the tunnels, but effectively making it far more difficult to cross that border. But the Egyptians do not want um, uh, Palestinian refugees to cross into Sinai. Um, why is Egypt doing this? What's, what's behind Sisi's motive that, you know, it, it, because it's a very risky strategy where, in effect, you're allowing uh, Palestinians to be destroyed, to be killed by, uh, by Israeli bombs. As far as I'm aware, humanitarian aid has been trying to cross the Rafah border yeah. and Sisi's given the green light for it. Right. The videos that show the humanitarian agencies moving, turning back from Rafah border is not because it's closed, but because the Israeli... So for example, there was a video, I think Meda Masr shared it, but I could be wrong. But Meda Masr is very good to follow, by the way, for this, for this, for this kind of news when it comes to Egypt. Uh -huh. But the, it shows a video of eight fuel uh, trucks turning back from the Rafah border. And the reason being is that they are terrified, of course, if... If they get bombed, it's a huge disaster if fuel gets hit by whatever. Mm. I think that the Rafah border, the general perception of the Palestinians is that it's open. And that even if Sisi doesn't want the Palestinians to come in, I don't think the Palestinians are necessarily fleeing to Egypt. Some of them are. But I think also that humanitarian aid is supposed to go through Rafah crossing. The Arab League meeting is meeting at the time in which we're recording this podcast. So we can't comment on the results of the Arab League meeting. But according to reports, they are discussing how to deliver humanitarian aid to Gaza. And the only way to deliver it would be through the Rafah crossing. I think that while the Israelis have bombed the Rafah crossing, I think that it's unclear to what extent they will antagonize the other Muslim nations. I think the US are operating on the belief and the Israelis that the Muslim nations are not seeking any outright confrontation with the Israelis. How long the Muslim nations will be able to keep that up is unclear. Bin Salman has, always buckled in, or has already buckled in his statement. Erdogan has already changed his rhetoric. And it's very difficult to see them sitting idly by over a prolonged conflict. I think it will become very difficult, particularly as public opinion starts to really express itself as we saw in Jordan, as we saw in these other places. Public opinion does matter. Some people often say or, or, or they quote, uh, what does all this social media stuff do or the like? If it didn't matter, Bin Salman could have said normalization talks are still ongoing. He can't, not because he's afraid of the Americans. It would please the Americans to say we do normalization. The only reason he's saying they can't continue or suggesting they can't continue is because he's scared of public opinion. So your tweets and reshares and, and comments, they all matter. It, all these trending stuff, they, they matter. Mm -hmm. So I think that the public opinion may make it untenable for them. Having said that, I think that Israel in places is still showing restraint on the border with Lebanon, for example, in the way that it's denying Iranian involvement. Iran is probably involved, but Israel is denying it because it doesn't want to expand the fronts that are taking place. 
Israel is limiting its attacks on the West Bank. The West Bank hasn't really borne the brunt of it either, suggesting Israel is also trying to limit that as well. Um, even domestically inside Israel, there are some Palestinians who are under, there's a report of two Palestinians being shot by police, but not a real huge crackdown on the Palestinians either. I think the Israelis are very wary of provoking a backlash inside Israel from the Palestinians themselves. All these suggest that Israel is showing some sort of restraint, which means that, going back to your question, which means that the Israelis themselves, given that they're showing restraint, it's unclear to what extent they will continue provoking the Egyptians. The Egyptians who, to be honest, Sisi has unprecedented ties with the Israelis. And there was a leaked report in Saudi Arabia that suggested that one of the things that upset bin Salman about Sisi or that bin Salman made a remark to reporters in which he said that our relations with the Qataris are thriving. The UAE agrees something with us in the nighttime and says something else in the morning. And Sisi is trying to use the Israelis to flex against me. So the idea being is that even the Saudis, according to reports, I know it's a leaked report and, and some, some people will doubt it, but the point is that Sisi has generally decent relations with the Israelis in comparison to those before him. I don't think it's mm. as strong as people suggest it is. I don't think the Israelis will continue antagonizing the Egyptians. I think the Israelis in bombing the Rafah crossing might have been a lashing out, which is why I started with the Israelis are hysterical in terms of what's happening. But I still think a lot of the things are unknown but it's hard to imagine the Israelis trying to open a front with the Egyptians. Either they're mugging Sisi off, to use a very colloquial term, right. believing that Sisi is so weak he can't do anything anyway, or either it's a lashing out and they will revise it and they will say to Sisi, look, okay, let humanitarian aid go through Gaza and let's see what the Qataris provide in, the, in their negotiations. Um, Mustafa Barghouti, I think on the Freed Zakaria program, he mentioned that um, uh, there's a potential for ethnically cleansing uh, Gaza through that Rafa crossing. Um, do you believe, do you buy the argument that maybe Netanyahu would use this opportunity to, if not remove all, and that's very difficult, 2.2 million uh, Gazans, but, um, you know, take the opportunity to evacuate large numbers of uh, Palestinians from uh, their land as a way of, similar to the West Bank, as a way of uh, 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 taking more land uh, for, for Israel? I think that when you remember the map that Netanyahu held up at the United Nations, I know people say, Sam, you've mentioned it now three times. Mm. That map is important because he mentioned it in the same breath as normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia, which yeah. suggests that his vision, normalization, will lead to this vision where everything belongs to Israel. I think certainly Netanyahu believes this is a golden opportunity to ethnically cleanse Gaza. Mm. Let's drive them out the way we've driven them out out of everywhere else in Israel. Yes. Let's drive them out the way we did in the Nakba in the 1940s. Let's drive them out the way we did in Tifada. Let's drive them out the way we did in... It's a golden opportunity. And I think one of the things that's quite fascinating is the cutting off of electricity to Gaza had less to do with limiting the operations of the Palestinian attack on Israel and much more to do with gradually... Uh, removing or letting all the phone batteries die of charge so they don't have the battery life anymore so that when the ground offensive begins, if it happens, there's nobody yeah. to cover it. Right. Think about it. Where is all of our information coming from with regards to what's happening in Palestine? And I think Asim, Dr. Asim Qureshi made a very good point on Twitter. I said, doctor, he sent me a message once where he said, I use doctor so to force the Islamophobes to show me respect. Muslims don't need to say doctor. But in, in any regard, Asim Qureshi had a very interesting tweet where he said, on the Israeli side, we're being told what is happening. On the Palestinian side, we're being shown what is happening. And I think this is a very important distinction in that when Israel cuts off the electricity, I think the preparations for the ground offensive are 
let the batteries die on the phone so that when we go in and ethnically cleanse and massacre the way the Serbians perhaps did to the Bosnian villages in, in, in the 1990s, there'll be nobody to see it. There'll be nobody to see exactly what's happening. And then as one, uh, it, it's been debunked, apparently it was fake news, but the sentiment perhaps is there, the idea of sending the Palestinians, let them go to Egypt instead or let them you know, flee to the West Bank. Or like. I think Netanyahu certainly sees this as a golden opportunity. And that's why I think many Palestinians haven't fled Gaza, mm. despite the incessant bombing. Palestinians have a very unique sense of bravery. And I think the Palestinians sometimes, and this is why when people sometimes criticize tactics or the like, I think people should be aware that this is a people who 70 years on are still holding very dear to their cause. And people who genuinely appreciate that the world has abandoned them and that they have to fight for themselves and they are desperately trying for their cause. And that's why I think that people should be very easy in the criticism of any transgressions that they might commit. I don't think that you should always you should bully the victim or criticize the victim of what's happening. Mm. And I think it was interesting. There's that Piers Morgan show on yeah. Talk TV. Yeah. There is a lady who gave a very good example of people who enter a home and throw the owner in a cellar and then they change the home and whatever and they abuse the seller, they don't feed him. And when he comes out and sees the home has changed, he says, I'm going to burn it down. He says, no sane person would blame the guy who was hid in the cellar. You'd blame the people who put the person in the cellar. And that's, I think, it was a very good example that she gave on the Talk TV or Piers Morgan show. But the idea being is that I think that Israel preparing for the ground offensive and turning off the electricity, something that's against international law, yeah. shutting off the water. I think the interior minister suggested polluting the water as well against international law. It's a war crime under international law, but of course international law doesn't necessarily apply when it comes to Israel. Yeah. I think all of that is in preparation that if Netanyahu, if he's considering ethnic cleansing, and I think it's very much possible, Netanyahu has been trying to ethnically cleanse the West Bank for ages and hasn't found the opportunity. He may say, I have my solution to wipe the humiliation off, which is to exterminate the Palestinians from Gaza. Yeah. I've turned off, so there'll be no proof There'll be no video from Gaza to say that I did it. I can always say that they left willingly, as the Israelis always say whenever they take land, they say, oh, but they left willingly, which is not true at all. Mm. I think it's a very frightening thing, a very frightening concept. I think it's very much possible. And as I said before, and I've said it numerous times, and I hope people will forgive me for it, I don't know. I think it's a possibility, but I think nobody knows. It's all up in the air. And I think that's the frightening thing about what could happen next. Can I ask you about Pakistan? I mean, when uh, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel was on the table, um, there was discussion about Saudi Arabia bringing Pakistan uh, with them uh, to, to normalize relations. And there were some signs that the army leadership in Pakistan were willing to go in that direction. Um, what's your message to the Pakistanis about whether that should ever be allowed. I think that one of the the reasons that that rumor or that suggestion, and when I say rumor, I'm not saying that it's not true. Mm. I'm saying the reason why people are, are really concerned about Pakistan's stance, because it's important to understand that in the Arab world, it's an unfortunate reality, but there is a perception in the Arab world that the South Asians and the Pakistanis and the Indonesians and Malaysians are Mashallah, their stance on this is is, is rock solid. Yes. They don't mess around the way the way the Arab leaders do. Oh. I think that the rumor was really uh, fueled by the visit of a journalistic delegation that went to Israel. It was believed that apparently it had been sent by the prime minister's office and then some journalists said, no, it wasn't an official visit. It was an unofficial visit. Mm. I think that when it comes to Pakistan, I think that what's important to highlight is that when Imran Khan was prime minister, 
one of the things that really upset the UAE and the Saudis, quite bluntly, is that at the time in which Saudi and the UAE were courting India and courting Israel, Imran Khan was calling emergency sessions on the OIC to talk about Kashmir, which India doesn't want to talk about, and talk about Palestine, which Israel wasn't, talk, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't keen on. And the OIC, when there's a vote at the end where the states have to sign, UAE and Saudi Arabia found themselves very reluctantly having to sign off on draft documents that Imran Khan would very passionately write about the need for the Muslim consciousness to talk about Palestine and, and Kashmir. Some people criticize Imran Khan and say, yeah, but it was all talk and not action. Mm. But I think that if it was a talk that had no potential, the Saudis and the UAE would not have been happy that, or, or, or would have been happy for him to remain in power. Mm. The fact that they celebrated him leaving meant that he antagonized them. And he antagonized them with his words because his insistence on talking about these issues meant he kept it alive in the Muslim consciousness. And it's important to highlight this point because and, and, and without exaggeration, the reason that it upset the Saudi and the UAE so much was that it created an environment and a haven for Pakistan to pursue alternative alliances to Saudi and the UAE. You'll remember that in Azerbaijan, when they liberated Nagorno-Karabakh, there was the Pakistani flag that was waving alongside the Azeri flag and the Turkish flag. <laughs> and I went to Azerbaijan uh, a few months back for in my first visit, first time. On one of the main roads, there's actually a testament to Pakistan <laughs> celebrating Pakistan's role in its support for Azerbaijan. Right. That's an Imran Khan phenomenon in that Imran Khan's message was able to transcend the nationalist rhetoric of the Azeris and the Azeris were able to look from a more ummatic perspective that is rather unusual in recent times for the Azeris. Imran Khan's rhetoric meant that it gave this idea of a possible railway from Turkey through Iran going up towards Pakistan or, 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 the, or the like. The idea being is that the Saudis and the UAE were concerned that the insistence of Imran Khan on these issues, that people were saying were dying as a result of the actions of Saudi and the UAE, meant that there was this antagonism. And that's why I always argue sometimes that Imran Khan's talk was creating a potential for Pakistan to be liberated from the relationship of dependency that it has on the Gulf states and that his ousting brought Pakistani back on dependency. The reason why I start with all that is not to celebrate Imran Khan, but to highlight why the current Pakistani government might consider normalization of ties with Israel if Saudi does it. Remember, when UAE normalized with Israel, mm. they brought Bahrain as a gift and they brought Morocco as a gift and they brought Sudan as a gift to the Israelis to say to the Israelis, look, I'm bringing all these people. If Saudi Arabia normalizes, it will want to bring the country whose people are most likely to riot about the idea of the land of the two holy mosques normalizing ties with Israel. The reason the current Pakistani government might do so is because where Imran Khan was pursuing alternative alliances that might be able to wean Pakistan's dependency on these states that no longer consider Muslim issues to be of importance, on these states that are prioritizing India over Pakistan, that are prioritizing Israel over Palestine, this government appeals wholeheartedly about upholding that relationship of dependency, going to Saudis and pleading for billions of money, going to the Saudis and giving off Pakistani assets to the UAE and the Qataris, mm. selling Pakistan for the sole reason of staying in power and essentially going along and aligning Pakistani foreign policy with the very powers that Imran Khan refused to align Pakistan with. So for example, when, when Imran Khan refused to get involved in the Ukraine war, there are reports that Pakistani weapons have gone to Ukraine in ceding to the US. When Imran Khan, for example, contemplated going to the Kuala Lumpur summit, Pakistan's relations with Turkey and Malaysia are no longer the same as Imran Khan's relations were with Turkey and Malaysia that had the potential to transform the Muslim Ummah and the like. Mm. The point here being is that I think that for this current Pakistani leadership, I think the Muslim causes are less of an importance to them mm. 
than it was to Imran Khan. If you think that Imran Khan paid a political price in foreign policy for taking these stances and still kept doing it, it shows that this current government, which is not doing the speeches that Imran Khan gave, mm. believe that these Muslim causes are not worth the political price that Imran Khan paid. We suggest that the Pakistanis might say that if Saudi is doing it, if Khadim al-Haramain al-Sharifain, if Saudi, one of the things that was quite fascinating is, um, and I hope I don't forget the point, but, but the point is that uh, when Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman went to India for the G20 summit, he didn't stop in Pakistan. Mm. Usually when Saudis go to deal with India, right. they throw something to Pakistan to say, we're still with you. This time mm. bin Salman didn't even bother. It's true the month before Khalid bin Salman met with Pakistani generals or the like, but, and, and promised money, which hasn't come yet. But bin Salman went to Saudi Arabia. When he went to Saudi Arabia, there was a very unusual trend where people were saying that bin Salman hasn't stopped in Islamabad because his heart is broken at what the Pakistan... <laughs> His heart is broken at what the Pakistani establishment is doing to Imran Khan. <laughs> and I think it shows how Pakistanis still view Saudi Arabia mm. in that they don't see bin Salman's de-Islamization of Saudi Arabia. They don't want to believe that bin Salman might normalize ties with Israel. They don't want to believe that, Khad, that the Saudis, you know, the land of Islam, and the Pakistanis love the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. One of the things that I found fascinating was that I went to Konya in Turkey, and I asked the tour groups. We were looking for partnerships as part of I, I, me and my wife. We run Halal Travel Guide. We're looking for partners to help us with our groups. But and we were saying, who, where do the customers come from? She says it's overwhelmingly Pakistani. I said, well, has it always been like this? She said, no, since 2019, since. <laughs> Erturul and these, their right. affinity for Islam is such that they were visiting every place that they saw on those shows. Right. They love the deen, they love Islam, and they don't want to believe that bin Salman is trying to de-Islamize Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And this was an example, the idea that bin Salman will go to India because his heart is broken about what Imran Khan did, which is completely opposite. The Saudis celebrated that Imran Khan went. Yes. I, I think that the Pakistanis will say, and going back to the point, the reason why I mention it is to give context, that if Saudi Arabia did it, there must be something halal in it. Mm. If bin Salman did it, if the land of you know, these mashayikh, you know, that we love and celebrate and the like did it, then why is it haram for Pakistan to do it? Maybe there's something because they understand Islam better than us. I'm, just, I'm not saying this is what Pakistanis say. I'm saying what people might argue. Right. That maybe, and therefore we should go along with them or the like. But the last point that's worth noting is that the Pakistani government may be concerned at a potential backlash. But the Pakistani government as it stands, when you think that at this moment in time, they are pulling all the stops and mobilizing all the institutions and, and bringing out all these confessions on live television, Osman Dar and these others and the like, to denounce Imran Khan and trying to prevent Imran Khan from running in elections in PTI and the like, because they're worried that they might replicate the landslide victories in Punjab or the like. Mm -hmm. It appears that the, the government believes that it has the means through which to suppress the people and suppress any backlash. They'll be thinking if we can do it to Imran Khan, if we can prevent Imran Khan from running in elections and politically engineer a result, we can handle any backlash with regards to normalization of ties with Israel and the like. Mm. I think Saudi Arabia is contemplating bringing Pakistan as a gift, but I still think when you look at the way that the Pakistani establishment is still struggling to indict Imran Khan mm. on any of the 200 plus charges that done Imran Khan, it suggests that the establishment are still facing stumbling blocks. And the only stumbling block they have in reality is public opinion, mm. which suggests that Pakistani public opinion still matters. Yes. So I think that the rumors, I think there's some truth to them. Yeah. Whether the Pakistani government will do it, it depends how much bin Salman gives them, I guess.
finally, uh, Sammy, um, you and I from, are from countries which are pretty much in a mess. You're from Tunisia, and um, Tunisia has been run by a deranged dictator. I'm sorry to, to say that. Uh, and I'm from India, and uh, Muslims are being persecuted in India. And actually, around the world, you know, we're bound by our ummatic unity. We see ourselves as being beyond our forged nation states. We see ourselves bound by this aqidah, and we are one as an ummah, and we feel for Palestinians, not because we believe in some uh, anti-imperialist left-wing struggle, but we believe that uh, these people are our people and Palestine is our land and Al-Quds is blessed because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed Al-Quds and you demonstrated that in in the last discussion we had. Uh, But there is a sense of hopelessness today. You know, we are in a situation where that ummatic unity is in our minds but it's not demonstrated anywhere in our leaderships. It's not demonstrated. You know, maybe there are a few green shoots, as you mentioned, Imran Khan, possibly, you know, there are some green shoots. Mahathir Muhammad gave a very good comment, actually, on, you know, as you may have read on on the, the Gaza conflict, which, you know, should be praised. Uh, but these are small green shoots. Uh, the political tendency is moving away from what you and I believe in and what we believe most Muslims believe in. Is there hope in this very bleak time? I think that sometimes I understand where Muslims come from when they present the bleak or they argue that the situation looks bleak. I know in in, in our first podcast we we delved into this, but I also want to present another angle that perhaps I I, I didn't present it in that first podcast that we did, the Raving in Riyadh one, which is that Let's look at the individual countries. If you look at Turkey, for example, Ataturk comes in and dissolves the Ottoman Empire. Ataturk struggles to win Turkish support. The Anatolians distrust him. So he calls on Sheikh Ahmed al-Sanusi of Libya, invites him to Turkey to do a tour of Anatolia, and he walks with Sheikh Ahmed al-Sanusi, and Sheikh Ahmed al-Sanusi calls him a ghazi fi sabilillah, and that's what gets the Turks to follow him. Ataturk is aware of that. So after he liberates Turkey, because Ataturk did fight, we shouldn't deny that. When, when After Turkey is liberated, he crushes those elements because he's aware that they weren't willing to follow him. They followed him only because the ummatic connection with Ahmed al-Sanusi, his endorsement, a non-Turk's endorsement, encouraged the Anatolians, the Turks, to follow Ataturk. So he crushes the Muslim movement. He changes the Adhan to Turkish. He bans the printing of the Quran or his followers ban the printing of the Quran and he changes the Turkish language from Arabic alphabet to English or the like. He suppresses the scholars and then he goes to the Kurds and he utterly smashes them. The Kurds who revolt on the basis of Islam, not of independence. I know Turks won't like to hear it, but I always argue that, you know, when you tell a population they can't speak their language and can't express their culture, 40, 50 years later, a separatist movement is going to eventually emerge. It's not, it's not rocket science. Omar bin Abdul Aziz once was asked, they said to him, I have an unruly group of people Send me more troops to crush them. And Umar bin Aziz replied, you know, Hassanha bil Adil. Fortify your area with justice. You don't need my troops. You need justice here. That might upset some Turks, but that's not the point. But the point is that, so Ataturk crushes all these Islamic sentiments or the like. But even within crushing that, the mosques and the ulama and the Muslims operating in those harsh environments deliver Adnan Mandiris to power. Adnan Mandiris changes the Quran from Turkish back to Arabic. Military gets angry and they launch a coup, but they can't change the Adhan back. Muslims are repressed 80s, another coup. And then it gets to 90s. The Muslims, through their work, through their ta'iyah, through their education and the like, 
they deliver Erbakan to the premiership. Nejmeddin Erbakan. The fruit of his... People always think, oh, these just politics. No, these are movements. Erbakan becomes prime minister. He's accused of Islamizing the state. He's toppled. But five years or six years later, Erdogan comes to power and transforms the face of Turkey. Whatever people comes, and we all have our issues with Erdogan, but Turkey has been transformed. In the Algerian liberation, in the 1920s, a movement emerged in Algeria that said that we shouldn't fight the colonizers anymore. We should be part of France, and I don't recognize the Algerian state. It's Farhat Abbas in particular. He led the movement. I don't know of anything called Algeria. And I am arguing for French rights within France. France should stay, but should give us equal rights. The reason that movement emerged is because in, there was a group of Algerians in Algeria who believed that the French had been there for so long, for 100 years, that there is no way they're ever going to leave Algeria. So we should just accept that this is the situation. There was a sheikh called Abdul Hamid bin Badis who set up what's called the Jamaid Ulama al-Muslimin, who set up the, the, the Council of Islamic Scholars, which was not a political movement. What it did was, was that it set up in every place like a Zawiyah, like not, not a Sufi order. People shouldn't confuse Zawiyah with the Zawiyahs and the Sufi order. But set up these schools where people would be educated in Islamic history and the Quran, reminding the Algerian people who felt the despair about Allah, the victories that he gives, the people who came before us, reteaching that history to a people who had lost despair and hopelessness. And the French records argue that Abdul Hamid bin Badis, even though he never made a political statement except that Algeria is Muslim and belongs to Ummah Muhammad, Abdul Hamid bin Badis revived or gave renewed hope to this identity that led to liberation. 40 years later, the French were kicked out. I think that when you look at the individual countries, Pakistan, for example, Pakistan was part of India. India was part under the British rule. The Hindus decided to persecute the Muslims and the British. They didn't know what to do. Eventually, the Muslims managed to separate and establish the independent state of Pakistan. Regardless of what you think of Muhammad Ali Jinnah later on, I know Pakistanis revere him or the like, but I think Muhammad Asad in his book argues that he was concerned that when the Saudis sent him to help write the constitution, he felt that Pakistanis were not too keen on Islamic rule or, or the policymakers at the time, even if the people were. But regardless, Pakistan, you look at its development and the upheaval or the like, we're talking today about the potential normalization. And I said to you that the Pakistanis are unlikely to accept. There's a fear that the Pakistanis, because they love Islam, they love the Saudis. That hasn't been ruined. And I think that Imran Khan is not something that happened in a vacuum. The Imran Khan phenomenon came about because the Pakistanis backed him because they believed, rightly or wrongly, is irrelevant. The Pakistanis believe that somebody who was a Muslim ambassador on the global stage is worth fighting for. When you speak to Pakistanis, why do you support Imran Khan? They don't mention economy. They don't mention politics. They mention he stood up for Muslim rights against the superpowers. Whether he did it or not effectively is irrelevant. Mm. That's what resonated for Pakistanis to take to the streets and provide the greatest threat to the political establishment since Pakistan's inception. The point here being is that people always talk about bleak political movements, but I think what they're more upset about, they're more upset that Allah has chosen a course that's not the course that they wanted. That Allah has chosen a course for the development of the Muslim political movement that they don't want. And that's why I think sometimes that when you remember that Allah is in control and Allah rewards and punishes as he wills. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Nuh to his people and for over 900 years he's calling to them and he still destroyed Nuh's people. This is why when the Prophet said Shayyibatni Huda, that the surah of Surah Hud has Shayyibatni, given me white hairs. Because in Surah Hud you see all the examples where Allah reminds you that success comes from him. I sent Salih to Thamud and Thamud didn't believe. I destroyed them. I sent Hud to, uh, to Ad. 
and Allah destroyed them. They didn't listen to Hud. I sent Shu'aib to Median. Median didn't listen. I destroyed them one by one because Muhammad was realizing that Allah was saying that I'm ready to destroy these people when I said the message. The point here being is that I think that when you look at the way the Israelis are approaching the Palestine issue, the Israelis were convinced Palestine was dying. They were convinced or they, are conv they were convinced that they were on the cusp of finally eradicating the Palestinians. Look at the mood last week and compare it to the mood today with regards to the Palestinian cause. It's roaring, Muhammad. It's roaring even though Israel is pummeling Gaza. Mm. It's roaring even though there is a death toll in Gaza because everybody is saying that the cause is alive and it's been proven to us here. Because the reality is that success doesn't come on your terms. The striving is on your terms, whether you choose to strive or not. But the success comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He gave victory to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu but not necessarily to the people of Noor. And I think sometimes we Muslims need to appreciate that and remind ourselves what is our ultimate goal here, which is Jannah. We are travelers in this dunya. We go past this dunya to give da'wah, to call people to what is right. And some people pay a heavier price than others. Some people are prevented from going to capitals, prevented from going to Mecca, Medina, prevented from going to Cairo or the like, because they are calling out for that which is good. Allah gives people different degrees of power. Somebody, his only power is to retweet. And, and retweeting fixes the algorithm so that the algorithm promotes the tweet so more people see it. That's power. Some people are given positions of media platforms where we can convey our messages, where you can bring Sammy to talk or bring Paul Williams or these other. Some people are blessed with power over an army. Some people are blessed with foreign ministry. Some people are blessed with... Everyone has their own individual power. And that's why I think that oh, when you look at the Muslim Ummah, how 90 or 100 years after the Khilafah was toppled, after the Ottoman Empire fell, when you look at how they didn't give up, the Turks delivered. That's why Erdogan, some people say sometimes, Sammy, you're soft on Erdogan. Mm. It's not that I'm soft on Erdogan. It's that I appreciate the efforts of the Muslim community who believed in Allah, who feel the same way we do, who feel they belong to an ummah. I appreciate the sacrifices they gave when they went to prison, when they were tortured, when they were executed, when they strived to teach the Qur'an, when they kept the Qur'an in its language to teach the people, when they gave the adhan in Arabic, when they would hide in their circles in order to teach Islam. I appreciate that. I appreciate that Erdogan is the latest in this chapter to break the chains of Ataturk. I appreciate that I'm not the one to come today to destroy it. I appreciate that in Pakistan, for all of the efforts of the establishment to control the Pakistani people and make them ignore Muslim causes, I appreciate that despite Pakistan being in an economic crisis, they come out in force for Palestine because they resonate with Al-Quds and they resonate with the Palestinians. I appreciate that the Bengalis who have been persecuted, the ulama in prison, tortured, they die in prison for the, because they love Allah and they love the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I appreciate that they, in what we call bleak, they gave their lives and they gave their struggles for it, that despite Khalid Aziz and Sheikh Hasina and these leaders in power, the Bengalis come out in force to protect the honor of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in huge numbers when Macron is trying to defend it, to say anything but our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that's why I think sometimes, and I said it in the first podcast, I think sometimes when Allah says, that when you count the blessings of Allah, you can't finish counting them. I think those who say are bleak, they haven't started counting the blessings of Allah. They have tried when Lindsey Graham, the US Senator, says this is a religious war. 
It's a religious war against Islam because they believe, we believe that we are somehow being defeated. They believe that despite all the efforts, colonization, the state of our weaponry, we still can't quash this ideology. Sami is born in London and he loves Allah and his prophet. Muhammad Jinnah lives in London, he loves Allah and his prophet. Muslims are growing in and they sympathize with Shri Suwala Brahman wants to ban the waving of the Palestinian flag. Because she's like, how can... These people still resonate with that. And the reason they resonate, and I, and, and, and I tell Muslims to be careful here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Imran, رَبَّنَا لَا تُزِقْ قُلُوبَنَا بَعْدَ إِذْ هَدَيْتَنَا وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْوَهَابِ Allahumma do not turn our hearts away from this deen after you have guided us. وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً And bestow upon us your mercy, implying that you could be turned away from this religion. Implying that the ingratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could lead you out of this religion. Implying that your lack of appreciation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could lead you out of this religion. When the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa said, Ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbat qalbi ala deenik. And the Prophet knew, he was the wahyun yuha, he'd seen the seven heavens, he'd gone to al-aqsa, and he said, Allah, don't turn my heart away from this deen. Implying, Ya Allah, I know that it's a blessing and a mercy from you that I follow this deen. I know that it's not a right, it's a privilege that you guided my heart and you put it here. I think that the reaction of the Muslim should be, Subhanallah, I recognize your authority. I read Surah Hud and I know that at any moment you can destroy any population as you will. Allah, I know that you can deliver success to anybody that you will. And that's, this is why sometimes I always argue from my own political analysis, being involved in politics, being involved in advising policymakers. I've been in this industry now for, for over a decade. And I've seen that policymakers, they don't know it all. They don't. They are just as confused often as you are. They are just as clueless as you are sometimes. And you realize there are so many opportunities to turn the levers, to turn the ledgers. A public opinion is making bin Salman backtrack on his rhetoric regarding normalization. Public opinion made Erdogan go back to lambasting Israel after he did a humiliating stance where he was like, we call for restraint. We're making Erdogan back down because of public opinion, because Allah has given every human being the ability to make a difference. Those who say it's bleak are people who don't know how to use that power. And that's why I think sometimes it's less about what, where are these people and where are these political movements and more about if it's not there, start it. If it's there, amplify it. What can you do within the powers that Allah has given you? That's why sometimes you talk about thinking Muslim. Allah has blessed you, Muhammad. Hundreds of thousands of people are watching your videos. But why are they watching your videos? They're watching because they believe that in these videos, they are receiving information and guidance on how they can deploy their power. Allah has given you that power to do so. At the moment, that's your place within this ecosystem that we have in order to try to promote these Islamic movements. And that's why I think that sometimes, and, and, and I won't go on too long about it, Muslims should be aware of the arrogance of the heart. Mm. The arrogance that says that if I didn't do it, it's not good. If I didn't do it, it's not worth it. I look at, for example, in Pakistan, and, and, and may the brothers forgive me because, because I, I know a lot of them. When I look at Jamiat Islami, for example, and their silence on Imran Khan, I think a lot of that silence, and I know they will be very angry with, with me on this. I think a lot of their silence is that we spent decades being the Muslim representatives. How dare an upstart like Imran Khan come and suddenly take the leadership away from us? I think that the reality is that we should be wary of this arrogance of the heart which suggests that I have to be on the podium. And that's why I think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you think about it, the greatest thing you can give to Allah is the sacrifice, not the goal. The prophets didn't manage to convince all of their people. مَا آمَنُوا إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Only a few managed to convince. Allah didn't reward them for the number of people they managed to win over to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah rewarded them because they kept going even when it looked bleak. We have du'as in the Qur'an where the prophets are saying, Ya Allah, I've had enough for them. I had enough for them. فَقُدْتُ لَهُمْ اسْتَغْفِرُ رَبَّكُمُونَ كَانَ غَفَّارًا يُرْسِلِ السَّمَعَ عَمِكُمْ مِنْ تَرْ Nuh in Surah
is describing how much he's tried to convince them. And in the end, he says, forget it, Ya Rabb, they are, they are useless. The prophets are, are, are this, but Allah is rewarding them for their striving and their effort. And that's why I think that sometimes, to answer your question, I know that it looks bleak, but I promise you that those who stand against the Muslims do not believe we're in a bleak position. We might think that we are becoming a defeated people, but I promise you in Washington, they don't think Muslims are becoming a defeated people. In Washington, they're debating why is it that after 90 years of top-down secularism, after 90 years of, of giving them raves, of spreading alcohol, of bringing them girls in bikinis, of giving them beaches and giving them financing and IMF loans and the like, why is it after 90 years they still vote for Islamic-leaning parties? They consider that a failure. Why is it that Erdogan wins election after election, not because of the economy, but because people are terrified that the other side is anti-Islamic. Let's be blunt here. Erdogan won the last election not because of the economy. Mm. Erdogan won the last election because Muslims were terrified the other party was anti-Islamic. Mm. This is in Turkey, which is considered the king of secularism. And this is why I think that sometimes for Muslims, when Muslims talk about the bleak future, the reality is that, look, you are the only one who sees it bleak. You are the only one who thinks we are being defeated. Everybody else thinks we're in the ascendancy. Everybody else thinks we're not being extinguished. Everybody else is trying, the French are saying, how on earth, why? We are, we are the civilizing mission. Why do they still hold on to these principles? Why is it that when we went into countries in Africa, they didn't adopt our religion or our values, but when Islam entered, it never left. Islam entered Algeria in the 700s. It never left. When the Algerians celebrated liberation, they didn't say, we are celebrating the Algerian state. They yelled, Ya Muhammad, Mabrook, Aliq, Al Jazair, Rajat Leek. Ya Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad وسلم, Congratulations Algeria has been returned to you That's how the ideology penetrated the heart and stayed there And that's why Ibn Khaldun says A civilization is not destroyed when it is physically destroyed It's destroyed when it's mentally destroyed It's destroyed when its psychology is destroyed And that's what colonizers are so angry about That why is it it still stays in these hearts? Why is it more Europeans are becoming Muslims? Why is it more Americans are becoming Muslims? Why is it that when these scholars go to debate Christians in this Spencer show I don't know his full name or the like Why is it that, I can, that the Christian identifies more with Muslims nowadays? It's because the message is resoundingly clear Because it's a message that didn't come from you who thinks it's bleak Not you specifically but but you who thinks it's bleak, it came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, master of the seven heavens and the earth, who decides what he wishes, does what he wants, when he wants. And the greatest honor is in not telling Allah, this is the course you should do. The honor is, Ya Allah, keep me on this deen and let me be the vehicle through which you express your will. This is the greatest honor. The way I see it is, the Muslim, and I promise, promise to finish on this point. The way I see it is this, the Muslim who says it's bleak, look at what you can do. If you, if you have the ability to share or retweet somebody in a, in, a, in a higher position of power, do it. If you can go pray in the mosque, do it. People will notice Muslims going in and out and they start asking the question, who are these Muslims going out? If you can go and organize iftars, go and organize iftars. Give da'wah, give da'wah. There is no better speech than one who calls to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We always sometimes like to lash out at people, but we forget. And this is why I, I brought this point about Rabbana la tuziqulubana. If you appreciate that Allah blessed you with guidance and that he can take this guidance away, you will take care of your guidance much more. You will start looking at your guidance and saying, how can I show my appreciation for this guidance? And the way you show the appreciation is to try to guide other people, to say, Allah, I love your message. So I'm going to say it. So to answer your question briefly, and I promise I'm going to finish on this point. To answer your question briefly, when I look at Turkey, when I look at Pakistan, when I look at the proliferation of mosques in the UK, 
When I look at the defiance of the Muslims in France, that they are still growing despite the crackdown on France. When I see Malaysia and how it preserves its Muslim identity. When I see that China is concerned about the growth of Islam in China. When I see that the African nations are increasingly turning to Islam because they see it as a liberating religion. When I see that Mali resonates more with Turkey because of the Muslim connection than it does with France with which it speaks the same language. When I see that Senegal, Turkey within the space of five years has almost pushed France out as a result of the Muslim connection, not because Turkey is superior to France. When I see all of this, I would be a fool and an ingrate to turn around and say, Ya Allah, your religion is looking bleak. Alhamdulillah, may Allah protect you and may Allah reward you and accept from you and I and from all of us. Jazakallah khair. Allah jazik, barakallahu fiq. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.